welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Greeting, James. Hey, Scott. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Let's learn how to be better investors. Let's. Yeah, we talk a lot about planning. Let's mm-hmm. help people uh, learn how they can apply some common sense, maybe not even common sense, but what are the best principles to apply yeah. to become an investor? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, let's, let's walk through some of the, the principles that we feel will help you improve your investing success. Yeah. And let's take a few episodes to do it, maybe. Okay. I think there's a lot to unpack with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much information when it comes to investing, what you should do, what you should focus on, buy this, don't buy that. And so we thought it'd be good to create a series, probably just three episodes or so. Yeah. Understanding how do you even start from the fundamentals of building the best portfolio for you? What should you be thinking about? How do you apply that? So as you're going off and, and listening to this, we're not going to give any specific advice, but we're going to give you the building blocks, the specific building blocks that you can use to uh, create the right portfolio for yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> um, just with all things financial planning, investment management, it really comes down to building out frameworks that are you know, based on academic research to help you improve your odds of success. Yeah. Because there is no, there, there is not a silver bullet in any of this, mm-hmm. right? It, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But if you can understand the principles and apply them in your favor, you increase your odds of having a positive outcome. Yeah. And that's what we all want. We all want positive, successful outcomes. That's so it. today we're going to talk about 10 steps towards just improving your odds of success towards creating that better outcome focus on these 10 things and the rest should take care of itself from there so where do we start what's number one yep so when we're thinking about the the markets as a whole um where where i'm going to start is i'm going to start by saying embrace market pricing embrace market pricing what does that mean what does that mean what that means is when i walk into the uh grocery store tonight to grab a gallon of milk i am not going to haggle over the price and wonder if it's overvalued or undervalued i'm just going to assume that there is enough milk being sold throughout the country right now that supply and demand is at the right price then that's what i should afford to pay Mm -hmm. and if we translate that to the stock markets for a moment the world stock market in 2019, traded on average $443 billion a day. Wow. So just imagine that everyone's showing up and someone's buying and someone's selling. And I'm not saying that it's perfect because it's not. But what I am saying is think of it as think of the stock market as an information processing machine. And each day, the world stock market has billions of dollars going through it. And it helps us understand what prices should be based on real time information coming out. Yeah. And to to apply your gallon of milk example to this, you, when you look, when you open up your E-Trade account or wherever you buy stocks mm-hmm. and you see, I don't know, Nike trading and there's a stock price for it. That's not just an arbitrary price. Someone said, here's the cost of Nike. That is the result of millions and millions of people trading shares based upon the information that they know about Nike, based upon what they think is going to happen to the share price in the future, based upon right. different things happening in the economy. 
that is almost, I won't say it's the fair, perfect price, but it's almost like the equilibrium price. Mm -hmm. If you have an equal amount of buyers and sellers agreeing that this is probably the most appropriate price for Nike, and the more you can embrace that, not just Nike, but any stocks, the better off you're going to be over time. Yes, absolutely. And that ties into number two. Yeah. So once we're there and we we agree that market prices are, are the best version we have of what real price should be reflective in the stock markets uh, and in the bond markets. The next thing we can go look at is, well, can I outguess the market? Can I beat it? I think you can. I believe in you. Yeah, I don't think I can. And I, I earned a, a designation. Uh, I'm a CFA charter holder. I see it right here. I'm geeking out on investments, thinking I could beat the market to find that I actually could not. Um, but if, if we take a step back and we look at uh, people who maybe have that type of a charter and, and manage mutual funds or exchange traded funds, and their job is tasked with trying to beat the stock market. We call that generating alpha mm -hmm. in our business. Um, alpha meaning the amount you earn over a benchmark. So if the S&P returned 10 and I can return 12, I earned an alpha of two. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, a lot of people think like, well, if you go have someone manage money, their job is to clearly to beat the market for you, right? So one of the things we can look at is can you or can people who we charge with trying to beat the market, can they do it consistently? Um, and if we look at all the data of US mutual funds from 2000 to 2019, um, there were about 2,700 funds in the stock market trying to beat the market. At the end of 2019, only 41% of them survived, meaning they're still wow. in business, right? So, so uh, more than most of them had, had gone out of business. And only 22% of those were winners, had, had beat the market. Um, and then if you translate that to fixed income or stock bonds, um, same thing, but you see uh, the 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 numbers actually skew to make it even harder to beat their benchmarks. Only 10% of the managers beat the benchmarks. And these are people who are trying to do this on a daily basis, right? They're not just um, chatting at barbecues or thinking about like, what's my favorite stock right now. Um, they're, they're like really all in on this and they struggle to do it. Yeah, exactly. It's not that they're not smart. It's that you said you earned the chartered financial analyst designation, as did thousands and thousands and thousands of other people. Mm -hmm. So you have very well compensated, very intelligent, very motivated people spending all the time they can trying to do this. But ultimately, when all those fees are involved, it just becomes hard to di very difficult to outperform the unmanaged index. And so what we see is if you don't try to outcast the market, um, because oftentimes it's just not doable, and that's just not our opinion. That that is statistics. That's data showing. Yep. And there's actually, I'll just add a, a touch more to this. Is there's two other? There's a couple other things at play here. One of which is the competition is more fierce than it has ever been. Meaning that like back in the 60s, you, you didn't have access to the data that you have today, right? right? So like if someone had a better a chance to get better data on their hands and they didn't have as many skilled professionals out there chasing dollars, it made it easier to win. Uh, now that you have almost most of the markets are traded by professionals over amateurs. So now it makes it even harder to beat the markets because right. when you're trying to generate alpha, meaning I want to win versus James, like... I need to win versus James. We're at a zero-sum game. One of us wins, one of us loses, right? But if we just take the broad market as a whole, I can go ahead and get just the, the average performance, and I'm probably doing better than if I'm trying to win or lose. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Then step three is resist chasing past performance. 
So you might say, okay, Scott James, that makes sense. I'm not going to try to outcast the market. You know, I'm not going to do that. But you said that 22% of these equity funds did outperform. Mm -hmm. So could it be as simple as just finding the ones that outperformed and then riding the wave with those managers? It would be awesome if it was that easy. It would be awesome. And so what we looked at (laughs) is we looked at what if we look at the top 25% of fund managers, and this is looking at from 2009 to 2019. So for the first five years of that time period, let's look at the top 25% and let's just invest there. Well, over the following five years, mm-hmm. only 21% of them continued to outperform, which means the remaining 79% underperformed. Right. Fixed income or bonds, slightly higher, but but same story there. Yeah. So even if you found a, a manager that has outperformed, that's no indication they'll continue to do so going forward. Yeah. And we're not going to dive into it too deeply here, but it kind of comes down to the idea of luck versus skill. So when you start to look at the percentages, the way they're getting presented, what you find is that if you were to look at the the averages of what the expectation would be, we would expect that there should be some people who would outperform. It's just you can't find who's going to consistently do it on an ongoing basis. So it kind of comes down to luck and skill, and you can't t- mm-hmm. differentiate the two. So it makes it very hard to invest in someone who's going to outperform. Right, right. And the good news, tying into step number four, mm-hmm. it, it's let markets work for you. And so the good news of this is it's not as if, oh, I can't outperform. That means I can't get returns. No, it's just instead of working against the market, let the market work for you. Yeah. There's plenty of returns to be had. The market is one of the most incredible wealth generating machines. I don't know what you want to call it. Known to man. Mm-hmm. It's yep. totally passive. You put your money in and even without beating the market, if you simply capture the market returns, you're going to do quite well. Yeah. So let's just look at an example of that. So let's let's take, say we have a dollar to invest Yep. and we invest that dollar in... Um, small companies, U.S. small cap companies. So that'd be like companies that you probably don't really think the name of them very often. Maybe you work for one, but you're not going to hear about them in the news very often. I like going lowest to highest. Lowest to highest. Can we do that? Yeah, Can we start with bonds? Yeah, sure. If you want, let's go there. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting your flow, but I think it builds suspense. That's okay. Which Ooh, I like. Suspense. I yeah. Like that. Okay. So let's invest a dollar, 1926 and all these examples. And let's assume that you invest in U.S. Treasury bills. Mm-hmm. So just short-term safe government bonds. So basically cash with a little bit of interest on top. Yep. That dollar from 1926 until the end of last year, it would have turned into $22. Okay. So something, you know, nothing exciting though. Mm -hmm. Invest that dollar in U.S. long-term government bonds instead. $1 turns to $175. So a little bit more risk in the bonds, but still fairly safe. $1 to $175. Invest in U.S. large companies. So this would be like investing in the equivalent of the S&P 500 from 1926 to the end of last year. Now, Now things start getting significant. That dollar turns into Mm $9,237. And now if we do U.S. small caps, I'll let you do this because I'm sorry for cutting you off. I just wanted to build the suspense for this moment. Yep. So large cap U.S. dollar, uh, your $1 turned into $9,200. If you go small caps, so you always invest in little companies all along the way, your $1 turns into $25,600. Wow. Yes. So that's the good news. That That's not beating the market. That's not only if you chose the best manager. That's not only if you got lucky enough to invest with Warren Buffett from his young age. Mm-hmm. That's just you on the market and let the market work for you. Yes. Some pretty incredible things happen. So step number four is let markets work for you. Absolutely. Step number five is the market's not created equal. Right. All parts of the market, there's not just one single market. There's different aspects to it. There's different things that you can look at that will give you potentially superior returns if you invest in those areas as opposed to others. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of those areas? Yeah, so you're going to have to understand what uh, the difference between what's an, what we call what we might think of as an expected return. So um, when we think of an expected return, like 
the um that T bill we were talking about earlier that turned into what twenty two dollars. Yeah, that we might call risk free, right? The U.S. government issues it. We put money away. The government gives us money back. Um, it really we can't. Really it's pretty much guaranteed. It's just yes, kind of guaranteed base rate. And then on top of that, you start to add these different layers of premium that you would expect to receive based on how you're going to go invest, yep. right? So if you're going to invest in the stock market, you would expect to receive a greater rate of return than if you loan money to someone and give them, that'd be like buying a, selling it, you know, using a bond, yep. for instance, right? So we would expect to see greater returns in the stock market as we do in the bond market. And that's what we see when we look over history. Um, from there, you can go look at things like company size, which we just saw that $1 turned into $9,200 for the big companies. And the $1 turned into what's 25 and 25, 26 for the small yeah. companies. So if we invest more in small companies, we should expect a greater return over market cycles. Right. So when you start to look at it through those lenses, you can start to ask yourself what, what, premiums or what expected returns do I want to build into my portfolio? So yep. how much do I want to invest in large companies versus small companies? How much do I want to invest in value stocks versus growth stocks, which is another type of premium we can look at? How much do I want to invest in more profitable versus less profitable companies? Yep. The biggest driver of return that we have to look at is how much do I want to invest in the stock market and how much do I want to invest in the bond market? Right. right? We can see that very clearly. The Dollar invested in the treasury bonds, which is the risk-free rate, gave us $22 all those years later. Yep. Not a lot of risk. But at the same time, if I really need that money for that for some reason, maybe I need it for withdrawals or in retirement, it could make a lot of sense to have mm -hmm. funds in treasuries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So consider the drivers of return. Not Knowing that not every part of the market is created equal, there are different parts of it with different risk and return characteristics. And then even on the bond side, there's different drivers of return. We won't dive into them, but it's um, terms. So how long are you lending your money for? Credit quality. So what's the credit quality of the issuer? When you're owning a bond, you're essentially lending your money. And are you lending it to a company or government with great credit quality or a company or government with poor credit quality. Uh, and a really good example for that for you at home is think about right now, you might be looking at refinancing your mortgage maybe. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're a really high credit quality, the bank will give you a lower rate. Yes. And if you have a very poor credit score and you're a higher risk to them, they are going to make you pay more in interest rate. Right. The same thing happens here with credit quality for corporations, for governments, insurers and the like. Yep. And then term is just looking at how long are you going to have that bond out for? Mm -hmm. The longer you're going to have it out, the more um, risks we're at, especially with inflation. Exactly. Yep. So that's number five. And then number six, practice smart diversification. And I like this one because um, everyone knows you don't want to own just one stock. That's not diversified. You know, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. So what do you do? Okay, well, I went and I bought the whole S&P 500 index. And now I'm diversified. Mm -hmm. Right, Scott? Totally. Uh, except you're not. Oh. Right? Uh, that, that in that, if you owned the S&P 500, that $1 in the example we gave a little while ago would turn into $9,200, whatever that price point was, which is mm -hmm. nice. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you had some funds also invested in those small cap stocks, mm -hmm. you could potentially be increasing your expected return. Yep. Um, and then we've done in a previous episode, we also talked about smart diversification and we looked at investing just in the United States versus investing globally. Mm -hmm. um, I think we looked at it decade upon decade. We did. Yeah. 
And we found there are some decades when the U.S. wins and there's some decades when global wins. But overall, it's nice to be broadly diversified. Yeah. And the reason for that is if you own the S&P 500 index, that's great. Uh, but it's really it's 505 stocks all here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. subject to the same economic risk, subject to the same political risk, subject to the same market cycles in many ways. Mm-hmm. Where if you really if you own a global market index, say the MSCI All Country World Index, well that represents investments in 49 different countries and right. over 9,000 different stocks compared to the 500 here in the U.S. Right. So really diversify and owning the S&P 500 is a good first step but it's still all U.S., all large companies, and you want to expand that to different countries, different currencies, big companies and small companies, et cetera. And so diversify even further than just the S&P 500. Absolutely. What's number seven? Uh, From there, so now that we can broadly diversify across all those different things like small cap and large cap and international emerging markets, well, obviously we need to to figure out which one of them is going to win year over year and place more money on those areas that's going to win more this year. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. But it's very difficult. Yeah. So we're we're looking at a a quilt in front of us is how what I think of it as, which is basically looking at all these different types of slices that we could go invest in um, all over the world. And what you see is that it's completely random when you look year over year. You can never tell from one year to the next what's going to win next year. Mm-hmm. And there's some, I mean, do you remember when Greece was defaulting all those years ago? Not mm-hmm. all those years ago, like what was it? Yeah. Seven, eight years ago, nine it, years it ago. Pigs, right? It was pigs, yep. Uh-huh. And the stock prices of the companies in those areas, they plummeted. But mm-hmm. ironically, a couple years later, some of the best prices, stock prices a couple years later, were from those very countries. Mm-hmm. And well, what gave? Well, is because there's just this uncertainty, this massive uncertainty of what's going to happen next. We don't know. Why on earth would we ever invest there, though? We invest there because things are unpredictable, both yeah. with winners and losers. And so this year's winner isn't necessarily going to be next year's winner, nor is this year's loser necessarily going to be next year's loser. Right. And we can't predict ahead of time what it's going to be. So that's why you want to own a good diversified set of investments and avoid trying to time the market, which is maybe one of the hardest things to do as an investor. It sounds so simple, and yet it can be so hard. And you know why I think it is? Why? I think we do it, but we justify it. You know, last episode, we talked about the presidential election. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have if I know we're not supposed to time the market, but I think this would be a great time just to sit in cash for the next few months. Right. Well, in in your brain, you're not admitting to yourself that what you're doing is market timing. You're rationalizing it. You're coming up with some logical reason, but the reality is you are market timing. Right. And so if we keep essentially lying to ourselves and tell us, oh, we're not market timing, but we come up with these excuses for doing it, um, (laughs) we're not recognizing that we're actually engaging in really destructive behavior. Uh, Another issue that can easily come up is um, the S and P is doing so well right now. Yep, and it's going to keep doing so well because it's that's just it's already done so well for so long. How can it not keep going? Why do I have my money in international or in emerging markets? Because we don't know when that flip happens. Yeah, and it will happen. And when it happens, it happens fast. A lot of times, you don't right. want to miss it. And but if if you go run into the thing that's already doing really well, well, just realize that if 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 you go buy into something that's bid up high. It's very hard for it to keep going up. Yeah. Versus if you're invested globally and you're saying sorry to yourself for never having the thing, you're going to end up being much better off in the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So number seven, avoid market timing. Number eight, and this goes with it, is manage your emotions. We just go through this cycle as investors of things are going up and we're optimistic and then we're more optimistic and then things are really high and we're elated. And that's oftentimes when things be most dangerous. Yes. Because after that, the downturn happens. So we get a little nervous and then we get a little fearful and then we get downright just, it, it's dreadfully scary. And right then, that's oftentimes the greatest opportunity. And then the cycle reverses. And so as an investor, it's normal to have emotions, but try to keep your emotions from dictating your investment decisions. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because like we, I literally just gave the example of the S&P doing so well recently. And, you know, maybe you're looking at that's doing well. Maybe we should put more in there. That's kind of headed to the elation side of things in yep. that moment, right? Yep. Um, and then at the same time, you could go back just a few months ago to March, March of this year. Oh, yeah. When we were so fearful that the market was going to just fall and fall and fall. And that was the time to be buying things if it was out of your allocation. We'll talk more about allocation in a coming episode. Yeah. How many people would have been excited to buy stocks on March 23rd of this year? Yeah. Like well, very few. It, it's like, But in retrospect, you're kicking yourself for not investing more because stocks since then have been on absolute tear. Yeah. It was Amazon Prime Day. Right? <laughs> like, it's like, oh, it's Prime Day. Let's go yeah. buy a bunch of stuff. Everything's on sale. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but it's scary to do it when it's happening. So check your emotions. Oftentimes the best thing to do in many situations is nothing, um, assuming you have obviously the right portfolio in place. Mm -hmm. What's number nine? Number nine kind of ties into our episode last time. We were talking about the presidency, which ties into look beyond the headlines. Mm. So, you know, daily market news and commentary can challenge our discipline really, right? It, it yep. stirs up our anxiety. It makes us worry about what's going to happen or makes us think like, why haven't I done this? Um, the S&P has done so well. Why am I investing internationally right now? Like, let's just, you know, it's, it's, it's designed. If you think about what basically a, 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 a mentor would call it the, the, the financial pornography mm -hmm. um, networks, mm -hmm. right? like, yeah. like they're designed to sell ads at the end of the day. Yep. They're designed to get eyeballs on to get you to pay attention. Yep. So they're not going to talk about how things are going swell. Mm -hmm. Like they're always going to worry. They're always going to be about what you could be doing or what is coming yes. or what's the big downside. Right. And it, it generally doesn't help you to look at that very often. Yeah. The, the, the financial media, I guess any media, they have a, they have a vested interest in your attention and they know better than anyone. What gets attention is fear. Yeah. Fear and stirring anxiety and creating uncertainty that is going to gather your attention or grab your attention way more then own a good diversified mix of funds and ride the wave. That's that's boring. It's so boring. But it's what works. Yes. <laughs> what doesn't work is what catches our attention. And so the media knows that. And they're going to constantly create headlines designed to create clicks because those clicks are what are going to attract you. And the more attracted you are to that, the worse you're often going to perform because you're going to be tempted to make a bad decision. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, investing globally, investing broadly, uh, all those things, it doesn't make for really exciting commentary on what's happening day over day it's like watching grass grow yeah <laughs> it's really which can be very exciting but, depending on but the over grass. time it, it really reaps a lot of rewards and then number 10 the focus on what you can control mm -hmm. so this isn't to say hey there's nothing you can control it's all out of your control just go with it it's, no there's a ton of stuff that you can control mm -hmm. you can create an investment plan mm -hmm. that fits your unique needs and goals and, and tolerance for risk Mm -hmm. You can create a portfolio. You, you have absolute control over how you structure your portfolio. 
using those different dimensions of expected returns that we talked about. You control whether you diversify globally. You control how much you save. You control what you do at work. You control your expenses, your turnover, the taxes of your investments. You control how disciplined you stay through different market ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a lot that you do need to do, but it's very important to draw that line between uh, what you can control and what you should take action on versus what you can't control and what you should probably shouldn't take action on. Yeah, that's where I would, for this, you know, um, all these principles are simple, um, but simple doesn't mean it's easy. Right. Right. And so one of the things that I would look at is at the end of the day, you know, build a plan for yourself, um, build a portfolio, invest globally, manage those expenses. All those things are great. The question is, if you find that you're falling short and be honest with yourself, if you are, that's to me the time to hire a guide. Mm-hmm. And like, so a fina- that's what we do for a living, right? For mm-hmm. some people, we're financial advisors. And one of the things we do is help them manage assets. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that you can't do it on your own because you can if you have the ability and the willingness and you can follow through and execute. And the temperament, right. But if you're not doing those things, if you're falling short, well, then it can absolutely be worth it to hire someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just something to keep in mind. Yeah, Absolutely. So these are the 10 steps to just creating that better investment experience. Mm-hmm. These are fairly general. I think next time what we'll talk about is specific types of asset classes. How do you think about constructing a portfolio using this philosophy? But that's all I think that I had for today. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Nope. All right. So stay tuned for next time. Next time is going to take you to the next step in this and to how you can design the best portfolio uh, for you specifically. So we'll see you then. See you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.